This is HOSA. A podcast that explores the people who make and have made San Antonio what it is today. We're your hosts, Alfredo de la Garza and Tanner Freeman. You may not know this, but San Antonio has a rich music history. Conjunto to rockabilly, from rock to jazz, San Antonioans have been in the mix of virtually every music genre. This is home to Grammy winners and pioneers that have made industry-changing music and is also home to our next guest. Edwin Stevens is a longtime advocate for the local music scene and is no stranger to the stage. Being a founding member of many bands and a founding member of San Antonio Soundgarden, Edwin has been a resounding voice for promoting local music and artists, and he's helped develop and record these artists as a producer out of Greenhouse Studio. So, Edwin, uh, what's the name of your studio? Uh, the studio's name is Greenhouse, and so uh, it's, it's, a, it's a partnership. Technically, studio is owned by uh, my friend Jake Kreifels, and um, I am just like the properties owned by him. I'm a producer and an engineer out of here. It's a beautiful studio. It's got a really cool vibe. It's quiet, big trees, and like it's a, it's a house that's been turned into a studio, so it's, it's a really, really homey vibe, naturally. Through the whole vision casting stage like that was the whole thing we felt like San Antonio was missing we really wanted to have like an organic space you know space it's like um, just felt like a we're doing natural recordings a lot of analog gear that we're working with here and right. we want to work with like organic bands I don't know greenhouse homegrown feel from what I understand you've been living in, in San Antonio for a long time but you're not originally from San Antonio where, where are you from I was born in Fairbanks Alaska in 19. 19- 82. So we moved here in 95. And how was, how was that, you know, going from a fairly still rural place like Alaska to San Antonio? The most distinct things I remember moving from Fairbanks to San Antonio is there's not really, at least as a kid in Fairbanks, I never really experienced class distinction. Um, there's definitely people in different classes, but such a small city, like everybody just kind of knows everybody. I think there's like 80,000 people. And we moved into, um, like, we were always in, like the poorest parts of the north side. So I went to Hobby Middle School, which they call Snobby Hobby. And all of a sudden, like, things mattered. Like, if you, I had never experienced, like, somebody cared that, like, if you didn't wear the right clothes or something like that, like fashion and, and any of that kind of stuff was completely foreign to me. So being plopped into um, an environment where, like, status, social status, and these kind of things mattered was, it took some adjusting. I do remember, I remember making snow forts. I remember like laying out under the stars and like, you know, in the wintertime and just being able to like, you can see the Milky Way and you can see the Northern Lights. And when you live up there, it's so hard not to have a really solid grasp. It's like, it's undeniably, but that underneath the framework of reality is like some super deep magic. It's like, okay, <laughs> everything is magical. Because when you go out and look into the like expanses of like snowy mountains and you can just see like literally hundreds of miles and it's just majestic and you can look up into open night skies where it's crystal clear and you see millions of stars. And when you can stay awake all night and watch a sun that stays up until two, three o'clock in the morning at eight, nine years old, you're just like, whatever's happening at the foundation level of reality, like, this is, it's magic, you know? 
That's the biggest thing I carry with me from Alaska. It's just like how surreal and magical. So you moved here when you were 13. Those are pretty formative years. I know they were formative years for me when it comes to music. Were you already a musician? Is music in your family? Yeah, man. My brother is a classical pianist. So um, that was part of the reason that we moved here. Um, a, because we had family friends who would, who put us up until we could get on our feet. But also, uh, my mom was aware that UTSA had a pretty good music program. I had gotten a guitar when I was like eight years old or something like that. And I think my brother or my mom, somebody I had didn't put away, it was under a blanket. Somebody stepped on it and it got broken. So I didn't pick it back up until I was about 13 or 14. I had gotten to like punk rock music and skateboarding all about the same time. And also like Nirvana and stuff like that. So I'm like 14 years old, ninth, ninth grade, and started discovering music that I could play. Like, you know, I think I had fiddled around with the guitar, but all of a sudden I could like play along with these songs that weren't too difficult for me to kind of wrap my head around and like learn by ear. So that's really what got me initially um, interested in it. And, and when did you start writing for yourself? When was the first Edwin Stevens song produced and written and recorded? Uh, I remember, I think we tried writing songs back then when I was in high school. I mean, I wasn't, I was not very good at guitar until probably 18 or 19. I'd start working with a guy at a car wash on rainy days. He'd go back there and like bring his guitar when work was slow. We would just hang out in the back of the, the car wash and just jam all day. And so he taught me like a bunch of lead stuff. Um, I, I think I started writing around then. I went to Northwest Visa College for like a year or two in like 2001 after I graduated and they had like a, some sort of production class. I had gotten Acid Pro and I remember making some beats and I recorded a ska song and it was like, you can pick your friends and you can pick your nose, but you can't pick your friend's nose. Like shortly after that is when I, I jumped in uh, my first band, Blowing Trees. Right around that season, got really serious about guitar and like really ser serious about like trying to play and like be proficient in my instrument. I thought I was going to be like a really good lead guitar player till I realized that I had neither the the discipline or the tenacity to stick with it long enough to get like really good. Luckily, I discovered guys like uh, Johnny Greenwood and stuff that I just played with a lot of energy. And I just decided if you can make it feel good, like you can do this thing. So San Antonio has a huge rich history of diverse music, great music venues, and you were kind of around for all of that, right? Like all of it when it was really kind of wild and and like alive and, you know, t can you tell us about, you know, what the music scene was like back then? Yeah, man, I grew up going to the White Rabbit. When I was like 15, 16 years old, we started going to shows. When I started playing though, we, we lived more on like the north, northwest side. So we played like little bars and venues and stuff like that. And plus you can, you can make money. I was always like a little hustler since I was like a little kid, man. And um, I had made some relationships with friends who were like promoters and like bar managers and stuff like that in my early 20s. And I figured out real quick that if you could create value in alcohol sales, that like they're going to pay you. So like we would just like bring all of our friends to these shows and we would go instead of playing like a, a normal rock venue we'd play like a dive bar and boost their liquor sales a whole bunch and then they'd pay us up we thought it was a lie it'd be like 400 bucks 500 bucks and so we would use all that money to dump back into like gear and promotion and like um, making flyers we were still doing flyers and stuff back then and that's kind of the that's kind of the the method that we took man like go play places that we can make a little bit of money dump that back into the music and just keep going 
getting a record deal. That's what every band dreams of. And you guys landed one in 2007. So talk to me about how it went from, you know, kind of grinding it out for six years, five, six years, and then you get signed. Um, I mean, we there we had a bunch of things going for us at that season. Like we had kind of the perfect storm of uh, me kind of thinking really entrepreneurially about things. Madden is a really talented artist and taught me so much stuff about just being an artist and thinking as a creative. All those things culminating together, we're making money at shows. We had a lot of friends that we could bring out a big social circle to kind of help prop us up. Really driven artist, really driven business person. All those things really kind of helped propel us forward. But then we also had linked up with management really early on. We, we discovered that we couldn't do everything on our own. And it played a huge role into getting the record deal because our, our online buzz at the time wasn't like huge. MySpace had just kind of developed and we, locally we had a lot of support, you know, like even though I don't think we're everybody's cup of tea, uh, like aesthetically in terms of like the music that we're making, we were just friends with everybody, you know, and um, so we had a lot of local support. A big part of us getting that record deal though was having the business management because there's, I've heard the story two different ways. like. Chris says that the A&R girl reached out to him via MySpace. Our management said that they had met our A&R girl out in France at Madame. Madame is like a yearly, like music, like South by Southwest, but like for people even higher in the music industry. And so he was going out there every year and, and I know he had been shopping. We had done like an EP and, a, and an album with them and he was shopping it. So those are the two stories on how that relationship started. <laughs> And I'm not exactly sure which one is the truth, but I know that once that happened, like once that that relationship started um, and we were able to get them to come down um, and watch us at South by Southwest, um, we ended up setting up a huge showcase. It's 2007. We know this record label's coming to watch us. And we had booked an unofficial South by Southwest. I think it was like Red Gorilla Fest or something. It was like off South by Southwest show. And we booked the show, we're super stoked. We're like, record label's coming down. We're gonna, we're super prepared, like ready to play. Turns out being like this, like crappy little venue, like no legitimate sound system. And right before we go on, there's a Tejano band playing. They completely clear out like um, the whole the whole venue. Like anybody that would have seemed like would be into like a, an up and coming rock band is gone. And so literally we're, we're there like, I'm praying. Our manager's freaking out. He's like running up and down 6th Street, like just telling people, hey, go to this show. You're gonna love this band. And we're, we're texting friends, like come to our show. And it was like a perfect storm. I think it had started raining. <laughs> and right when Daniel Glass, that's the guy who owned the record label and um, some of his team had showed up, right when they show up, it looked crazy. Cause as we're going on stage, a flood of people showed up all at the same time. So it ended up looking like we're the coolest thing. And I had a friend, a really good friend from high school. She had been working with like the E-Network, like doing interviews for bands and stuff like that. She linked up with her producer and was like, hey, like, let's go film my friend's band. So all these people show up, camera crew shows up, and we just look like we're the coolest. Holy cow. <laughs> we look like we're the coolest <laughs> thing. I mean, we put on a good performance. Like, we really gave it our all. Sound was horrible, so I'm sure you couldn't tell if we were that bad. But the energy, I think, felt right. They offered us a deal on the spot. And uh, did you guys record after that? The label was really big on doing, like, a Texas thing with us. And um, they wanted to hire a Texas producer, guy we linked up with 
Dave Castell, who is still a friend of mine. Um, he he had just come off of the Blue October records. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, and Burden Brothers and like Toadies and all that kind of stuff. He was a Texas producer. He had just come off a platinum record. And that got to the label. And they're like, we really want you to work with this guy. Where'd you guys record? Yeah. So Dave came, Dave came in from Dallas and he came in and we recorded at a recording studio called Tejas. And uh, we spent probably like a month to two months in the studio. It's just crazy. Like being involved in having studios of my own these days, like I've got to give it to Chris. Um, He's so awesome to me, like in terms of like teaching me about business stuff, but even more so it's allowing me space in the studio to like learn how to be a producer. He used to let me sleep there with my dog, which I would never let anybody do. (laughs) Never. (laughs) And like back then I was so like such a privileged brat. And like, I would just be like, dude, just like, let us hang. We're going to make this record awesome. Let me just spend the night here and sleep. We're going to work all night. We need this extra time. And he would like, let us do it, you know, Um, because he totally wanted us to, to succeed. So Dave Castell taught me a lot about learning to make records, watching how he moved through in edits and he would let me do edits. Um, also an old en- engineer that used to work at that studio. When we do stuff, I everybody else go out and smoke cigarettes. I never smoked in my life, but I would want to um, learn stuff. And they'd be like, here, why don't you do all these crossfades? <laughs> why don't you cut out all this fat, like trim all this stuff? And I'd sit there and I'd be like nerding out at the computer and just stoked that I could have hands on. In retrospect, I was like, oh man, they were getting free work out of you. <laughs> that was like, that was a wrong client <laughs> customer relationship, but like I wanted to learn. And so, um, but watching how they worked and watching the attention to detail, I learned tons just watching them and being allowed to get hands on. Blowing Trees has some, some success, right? They become a pretty well known band in San Antonio and in Texas, right? And then it kind of tapered off a little bit, right? And when did Fisherman come into play? Yeah, we were doing really well, man. Um, There were some sticky situations um, where we lost a little bit of favor with the label. At that stage of my life, I didn't understand the value of managing your own relationships. As an artist, there was a certain level of ownership that we weren't taking to the band. We were kind of like, eh, we're going to be musicians and let other people deal with this stuff retrospectively, like I've learned, you've got to be really involved in handling your own relationships and speaking for yourself and cultivating those relationships. Some some mishaps, some missteps had happened in terms of that relationship. A couple of things I think um, just slightly rubbed them the, the, the wrong way. And so we had lost a little bit of support. You know, we had music climbing charts on the CMJ charts and stuff like that. And some funding had got pulled on what was promoting that. And it was doing really, really well. We had, you know, videos on MTV, MTV2 and stuff like that. and some placements in some major films and once some of that support kind of got pulled like our our momentum like externally didn't but like our momentum from them like kind of had tapered and part of that I I don't I wouldn't say it's my fault but at the same time my perspective like my relationship with my faith was going through like a really pivotal season. And when I was getting ready to leave the band, I was telling, you know, Chris, I was like, dude, I think I'm gonna go be a missionary in Africa. Like I'm gonna sell my stuff and just go. And like all sorts of, you know, like, you know, I, not to me, it's not that crazy, but like I could understand why it's, he probably thought it was crazy back then. I was just in a weird stage. And so I was not as focused and, and the band's success. And I had been kind of the entrepreneurial guy fueling that fire while he was fueling mostly like the creative and vision of it. So that kind of 
you know, offset some of the, the synergy that, that the band had. So I left Blowing Trees in 2011 for those reasons, simultaneously like focusing on a band that I had um, more of a creative, like creative ownership. I kind of had my own vision and kind of like what I was wanting to kind of like address culturally, socially and stuff like that. That's super informed by like where I was at with like my faith in that season. And so that's, you know, it was totally not bad terms. Um, it was hard, I think, emotionally for everybody because we were, Chris and I to this day, we're like brothers, you know? And so it was tough for everybody. Um, but I kind of, right. I, I went in that direction, started Fisherman, which was a great experience, man. Um, still is, you know, the same kind of a thing where it was like a band of brothers. Um, Roy, who was playing bass with Blowing Trees, he came and started playing bass um, with me. And we were like the two founding members of Fisherman. How did you decide, hey, I'm going to form this band and these are the people that are going to do it with me? Did you already have in mind like, man, one day I need to work with these people? No, man, like I've never been, I've never curated. I'm, I'm not one to curate friends and I'm not one to curate relationships or, you know, like I kind of will take whatever God, whatever God brings my way. I'm like, that's, you know, um, from jump, the vision of Fisherman, Fisherman was like a collective, right? We always wanted to be a big dynamic thing with like floating members that kind of popped in and out and, and have like a real communal sense. Roy Scavone, he was my brother for a long time. And um, every relationship was kind of like that. Jeremy, the drummer, we met playing at church. Um, Omar, we met playing um, or through some friends who did music in, in church together. Eli and, and Gabe, Eli, we had met. There used to be a coffee shop over off San Pedro called The Foundry. Back in like 2013 or 2012 to like 2014, it was this place you could go spend like a dollar on a coffee and then they'd give you free refills all day. All Everybody used to be there, man. Like Michael David Garcia and all the Die Happy people were, were hanging out there in the early stages. And so many people would just be around and like literally... You, it was like a kind of coffee shop where you totally felt comfortable taking a nap. They had couches everywhere. So I'd go in and spend a buck, drink coffee all day, use Wi-Fi, take a nap. And like, you just hang out with people. That's where we met Eli. You know, we just connected. He was like, hey man, I heard about your band. Like yada, yada, yada. I went to go watch his band show. And I was like, you guys are great. Started hanging out. Turns out he was a really good guitar player. And then, you know, we just invited him in. When you're focused on what a relationship can bring to you, like you just make different choices, you know? Right. Um, when you're focused on just like loving people, like you end up finding out things about people and becoming super close with people that might not, they're, they're not like you. Whatever comes my way, I, I just choose to invest and um, see, where, see where it goes. Fisherman, right now, it's a pretty well-known band, right? You've had some success. Everyone, everyone loves Fisherman you guys grew that success, you know, because I don't think it was just because you're a good band, right? I think I, there's like a culture around fishermen that made it successful. It's because we're a good band. It's because we're the best band. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I, I, I do think that you are a good band, but I don't think that's the reason that, that yeah, you're successful. Man, um, if you want me to be completely uh, candid, I, I think that any success that I've had, that Fisherman has had, like, it's been really just the favor of mm. God. I think God has just been super favorable. And you have two EPs, right? Yeah, yeah we really we released a dual EP at the same time. And all of these were recorded by you and the other members of the band 
at Ashby? Mainly at Ashby. We booked out some time at Keith Harder Studio. Mm-hmm. Uh, I worked with John Harder a little bit mm-hmm. um, to, to kind of recut some stuff. Also, my my friend um, and late colleague, um, Noah Breeden, who's the guy who helped me launch SASG, his family owns a lake house and... His older brother, who's one of my best friends, had let us stay out there for a couple of weeks to do some writing and recording sessions. So I, I packed up all my mobile gear and we did some recording out there. And we did a release in 2015 when we dropped them, sold out show at Sam's as a local band. And for us, it was a pretty big accomplishment um, to sell out Sam's. At that same time, it's right kind of when I went into launching SASG. So so for the people that don't know, what what is SASG? SASG is a nonprofit that's aimed at really just building up and uniting the music scene. So just trying to collect all the musicians and, and creatives doing music in the city and um, provide us access to space and resources and really just unite everybody to rise collectively. We started off as like a co-working space for creatives, um, in particular people who are working in music industry and have moved into kind of music education. So we're doing like production, like online production workshops and stuff like that, working with different educational institutes to help kids learn to start creating, producing music um, at an early age and really create like a pipeline from kids in like the middle and high school level and give them like a a track to get into like, you know, UTSA's music business program, um, which is really the big win for us to kind of see kids start their careers um, and thinking about that and then follow a a track that's going to get them further along as they get older. That's really something. That's incredible. Having resources for recording engineers and artists like that, that's that's kind of unheard of. It's a, it's a big deal. I mean, people don't think of San Antonio as a music city, but like really like one of the things San Antonio Sound Up Garden did was a, a study on the, like a survey on like the landscape of our music industry and our, our, our economy here. And I think if I remember correctly, it was like close to like a billion dollars or something like that wow. um, in revenue that that music creates here in San Antonio. So it's a, it's a huge part of our economy as well as like culturally, it's a, it's a big deal in San Antonio and you don't see it. I don't think it's not as in your face because we are, such a spread out. We're not like a really urban dense core with like really dense part from the strip, like music districts or anything like that. Right. But it's such a huge part of our culture. It's a huge part of, of our city and who we are. And so we really took pride in like being a part of that. It was really started with the idea or the vision that, you know, if you can get enough minds together, you get enough people resourced and, and on the same page that we can do amazing things and overcome obstacles collectively. So Edwin, you know, what potential do you see here in San Antonio, but also how does that differ from other places? I'm a big fan of like, let's dig in, let's deal with what we got, let's see what happens because whatever needs to survive here in this environment, like it needs to survive here in this environment and it ain't gonna look like the plants or whatever's coming out of Austin. It ain't gonna look like what's coming out of LA. It ain't gonna look like what's coming out of New York. but we need to be able to um, establish things that are going to be able to be rooted here and survive here in, 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 this, in this environment. So looking in the future, you know, it's this is a new thing now. Fisherman's kind of making a comeback, right? I went to that show. It was amazing. You got the studio. What's, uh, what's on the horizon? Um, man, new seasons for sure. Right now, Fisherman's going to, we're going to make some new record. We've got We've got like 30 some odd stuff in the chamber. We're just gonna kind of record and see what develops. We're hoping an album comes out of it. And yeah, man, um, 
trying to kind of loosen our grip on like what we think is going to happen in the future and have a little bit less of agenda. I know that as time has progressed and being able to look back and see where I've invested, our priorities are definitely like the experience, like being in it, not necessarily trying to achieve anything in particular as much as be in those moments, be in those relationships, be in those experiences. I would say the goal would be an outgrowth or a manifestation of that out into the community. Like we want to do that here and then we want to take that out places and hopefully to the city, hopefully, you know, to, to the rest of Texas and, you know, other places. We'd love it. I'm going to keep making records. I'm excited to start doing projects out of the studio. The big W for me is to continue to develop relationships, pour into some of these younger cats who got a little bit more energy and see if we can't pass the baton and see if some of these younger cats can't like take San Antonio to the next level and put us on the map. So fishermen think of us like a mentoring band. Like we're like a big brother and this studio is a place where we kind of want to be able to hang out and like develop people. And, and, and that's, that's, that's a focus, man. HOSA is produced by Soundcrane Studio and Do South Creative. <laughs>